Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. I'm Jeff Conway, Kathleen. Very nice to meet you, Jeff. I've heard quite a few good things about you. Oh, not from uh-huh. Susan. <laughs> yes, how could it be? Yes. Um, I'm going to have a purring cat on my lap. I'm assuming you will not be able to hear that. It just is We call him Zoom Cat because he just loves to be part of the action. Oh, yeah, that's completely fine. I might have one, too. Oh, um, so you're in Princeton. That's probably one of my favorite cities. That's just such a great college town. So, yeah, and I can't remember the pub, but they had great French fries. So, uh. <laughs> the alchemist and barrister, I bet. Okay. <laughs> was it the A and B? That was, that's a classic. Probably, yeah. I mean, that was, was it really close to a beautiful entrance into the campus, just across the street from that? It is like half a block. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I bet that was it. Great French fries. <laughs> they have really good ice cream in Princeton, too. They do. They have, well, they had Thomas Sweets forever. And then the gelato place uh, called Bent Spoon, that mm-hmm. is just out of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, when we had the cicadas, created a cicada ice cream, which was chocolate covered, crunchy cicadas in the vanilla ice cream. And it sold out in two hours. What? Are you one of those people who tried it? I, I alas, only heard about it. And <laughs> You know, if, in my mind, they're almost like shrimp. I mean, shrimp are kind of the insects of the sea. I mean, they, right. Absolutely. And I love shrimp. So so maybe, oh. maybe I can learn to love a cicada. Mm-hmm. I'm not there yet. <laughs> Hello, friends. Today we are delighted to get to speak with Kathleen Biggins, the founder and president of Sea Change Conversations. Kathleen grew up in New Orleans, studied at UVA and the Albert Ludwig University of Freiburg, Germany, had a career in journalism and marketing, and today she lives with her husband in Princeton, New Jersey. In 2014, Kathleen founded Sea Change Conversations as a nonprofit that works to build consensus across cultural and political lines on the topic of climate change. Kathleen and other volunteers from Sea Change, has spoken to audiences all over the country and internationally, walking them through the topic of climate change both socially and scientifically, and explaining both the risks and the opportunities that lay ahead because of it. Enjoy. Okay, here we go. So my first question is, what experiences led you to feel like you needed to do something about the topic of climate change? Well, when we got started back in, say, 2013, 2014, people really weren't talking about it. The press wasn't covering it. It was kind of a taboo topic because it had already become polarized. And people really didn't recognize that it was a threat that directly impacted them. And I just was so concerned because I had had the opportunity to learn from experts about it and to hear from non-green sources like admirals and generals and business people talking about the risk. And it was almost like watching a car with all your loved ones in it careening down a road when you know on the other side of the curve, there's a big cliff. You know, they don't know and they are um, happily in that car, don't want to know. 
and yet you know that they are in peril. And so like anyone, you jump up and down and, and try to slow them down and get them to recognize the risk. And that's kind of what we did. We tried to find a way that would make our colleagues, our loved ones, our friends understand that they had skin in the game and, and wake them up without turning them off. Wake them up in a way that would enable them to hit the brake and hold the steering wheel a bit tighter. So 10 years ago, were they still using the term global warming when they were talking about climate change? Was that part of the polarization that I'm remembering back from those days? Uh, maybe. I mean, global warming definitely was used more in the past. Now it's kind of uh, morphed to climate emergency or climate heating. So there's definitely been uh, ratcheting up around the language. But I don't think that that was it. I, I honestly think that in the 2000s, there was a real push to get bipartisan action on climate. And it threatened a lot of constituencies, um, including business, because at that time, green energy was much more expensive than legacy energy and fossil fuels. And if we had moved in an aggressive way, as was recommended, it would have driven up the cost of everything, you know, from toothpaste to tomato sauce. And especially when China was using coal, which was the cheapest form at that time, um, for their exports, it really would have put our business on a less competitive footing. Mm. And there was real pushback on that from not just business, but also consumers. Um, and it's really hard to fight something and ask people to sacrifice it for something, which at that time you were asking, when you don't see it and you aren't even sure it's coming. And if it does come, it feels like it's going to be far off in time and far off places. So um, that's, I think, why the pushback mm. on action was so successful at that time. So what are some of the various opinions that you've heard across different lines on this topic? Like, oh, that's not actually real, or that's not going to happen, or um, yes, it's happening tomorrow, and we're all going to die, like, just all across the board. <laughs> um, we've had people say that my God would never allow this to happen, that it can't be as significant uh, a threat or shift because God wouldn't allow that. Um, most people are more like, how do we know it's us? How do we know it's really happening? It's not just a normal pattern. There are people that say something different from what you're telling me. How do you square that? Uh, for a while, there were some aberrations in the science, like the Antarctic ice was actually growing while the rest of the ice was melting. And so they would pull that out and say, see, if this is happening, it means the whole argument is specious. It doesn't hold water. Well, that may not be a good metaphor to use with ice, is there? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of cherry picking of, of facts and of experts. Um, there's a lot of denial of responsibility because that is uncomfortable for us. Um, and every now and then, that one case, an audience member who I heard, heard later was quite sensitive and had young kids, mm -hmm. literally started to cry at the end of the presentation, which normally has never happened. Oh, I'm sorry. That sounds terrible. Well, I'm glad that it doesn't happen very often. If it happened every time, I feel like you'd It'd be really hard to deal with. Um, <laughs> okay, so now I know on here we don't get to give your presentation, which has been called a grad level course on climate change in one hour. But 
Let's just ask our listeners to come along with us for a second and assume that the risks of climate change are real, affecting infrastructure, crop yields, water supplies, our abilities to do our jobs, our health, our geopolitical stability, essentially everything. So if that's the case, can you tell us what hope there is and what opportunities are there because of climate change? Well, first, let's help them connect the dots on why it's a case, because when you hear that litany, you kind of like, well, throw in the kitchen sink. I mean, we're the locusts and, and every other scourge upon us. And what climate change does is impact the basic natural systems that we depend on. So it makes things too hot. It makes more extremes. So we're having these extreme rainfalls, or it also makes our droughts more extreme. It also causes more extreme cold. And again, it's because those basic natural systems that have always kind of stayed within certain parameters that we think of as normal um, are changing because we're changing the composition of our atmosphere. And it kind of cascades over these many natural systems that we really do depend on to stay safe, to have enough food, um, and to have temperatures within which we as a species can can flourish and survive. So it's, it's not just that, oh my goodness, climate change causes everything to go awry. There is a reason why it touches and impacts so much. And there's a reason why it is so frightening because we have evolved to live in this wonderful little niche that has existed for the last 10,000 years when the earth has been right around 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So we're pushing the envelope, we're changing the world around us, and that will impact us and all the species that um, we share the earth with right now. There is hope. Well, there are some silver linings, even with these changes. For example, right now in Sweden, they can grow wine grapes. So we will soon be having delicious wine from Sweden or champagne from um, England. So uh, Canada and Russia actually make out like bandits for a little bit because our growing um, zones are moving north. And so that they will have more ability to grow food and our population centers will lose it. So if you live in Russia, that's not such a terrible thing. So there are these pockets of um, good news along the way. But the real good news, I think, is that we now understand the problem. We understand what's causing it, and we have these new technologies that could enable us to have a rich, um, wonderful lifestyle, very much close to what we have today, without putting up greenhouse gases. And along the way, we have the capability to absorb some of those greenhouse gases and bring us back towards what that normal used to be. And if we come together as a world, um, and coming off of COP28, we heard it in a resoundingly Huzza, let's join forces and let's move. If we do that, if we implement, if we do the hard work of figuring out the policies that will work, we can do a lot to make the future much safer for our kids and grandkids. So there's a lot of opportunity to mitigate and to adapt and to make the changes much less extreme. And we have a lot of technologies at hand right now that work. So I don't know that many of your listeners may know this, but wind and solar um, energy has dropped so precipitously that it is now significantly cheaper than fossil fuels. And then when you add in the batteries, because battery technology has dropped, um, they are still competitive with fossil fuels. So you can choose to have your energy from a molecule that's dug up from the ground that causes all sorts of ecological damage right to our, our air, our water, and our land, and climate damage. 
or you can get your energy from an electron, um, which comes from the wind or or, or the sun, um, and 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 it has less ramifications. It too has some. You know, there are issues with some of the uh, chemicals that are needed or where they're cited. So I'm not saying that any energy is perfect, but it's more perfect than <laughs> um, fossil fuels. And we have that ability right now. And the other intriguing part is that people have this idea that natural gas, for example, is much more reliable than clean energy. But in fact, natural gas fails in high temperatures and low temperatures, which we're getting in part because we're using natural gas. So by using natural gas, it's creating these systems or these system shocks that endanger our current energy system. And they, natural gas is also tied to a volatile global market. So when um, Russia invades another country, um, the spikes are tremendous. In Europe, they were over 400% more expensive. And here in the United States as well, because it's a global market. And so clean natural gas isn't that clean, and it's not that secure. So there's this a lack of recognition that our choices right now today are already better and already cheaper. And we need to really embrace them and find a way to integrate them better into our system. And other countries are doing it. There are other countries that use wind and solar for like 70% of their power mix. And we're under 20. So there's a lot of room for us to go. And then on top of that, there's these wonderful new technologies that are, some of them are complicated, like um, stripping out green hydrogen and using it on uh, landfill waste and turning it into a green molecule form of energy that could be used in shipping. So that sounds, that's kind of hard to think about, but they're brainiacs that are doing it. It's called green fuels. But there's also simple technology, which is just taking wind and solar and heating up bricks or rocks to such a high temperature in an insulated way that it holds its temperature and can be used in manufacturing instead of a natural gas plant. So complicated, simple, all of these are coming. We just need to, to invest and test and find the right ones and integrate as quickly as possible. Nice. And practically speaking, as we transition, that can and will create massive amounts of jobs as well. Yeah. So I know that you intentionally seek out audiences who will not automatically agree with you on these things. How do you emotionally deal with walking into hostile crowds on a regular basis? <laughs> Most of the time, I'm really excited to be there. Um, again, because of how our mission started, which is the feeling that we are all collectively in that car, but also that I'm watching others in that car going into a dangerous place. And, and if I can tell them, to at least hit the brakes and open their eyes, then they'll be safer. And so I kind of feel that way when I walk into a, a crowd. It's like, I, I want to share this information with you because if you, you are imperiled by not knowing it. Um, and I have confidence in our presentation now that we've done it often enough in hostile audiences um, that it does work. And it, it, it works in a way that doesn't inflame partisan passions. Uh, so I'm usually pretty excited. I'm often a little nervous, but that makes a presentation better. And I, I love it when I hear somebody come up and say, you know, I had a whole different perspective, but you really changed my mind. And we do get that. And that's kind of something you bottle and you use for the next hard presentation and for your hard work in between, because 
that's what we're trying to get. And, and we know that when we change people's minds, it's just not one person that it kind of ricochets out and impacts others. Mm -hmm. um, we've said our a number of times, so it's not just you, Kathleen. So can you just describe who the our is? Oh, you are in your group a little bit. Sure. So our is the Sea Change Conversation team. And we are a team of primarily volunteers. We started off with just a few of us at the beginning. We've kind of grown to have chapters in other parts of the country who, once we've been in and had um, presentations, wanted to continue that education process, wanted to continue to reach out to moderates and conservatives in their markets. Um, and they tend to be in the South. Uh, so we've grown now, to, I don't know, probably about 28 volunteers, and we have three um, part-time staff, which we're really excited to have. And we are a group, as I said, of, of loosely affiliated um, volunteers who are just passionate about getting this message out and work really hard to do so. We have a, a robust follow-up to our presentations with newsletters every month of uh, news of concern and hope within the climate world. We have interviews with experts. We do blogs. We, we were just over in COP28, so we did a lot of blogs and educating for our database from that. So we hope we will continue to influence them with, again, this nonpartisan approach to educating on the problem. Okay, great. So let me jump in here and just ask uh, my son and uh, one of my sons and daughter-in-law, they are both indirectly connected to petroleum companies. Yep. So they're in their early 30s. How are you getting the people to come in? Are you getting these young 30s that are in the industry or is it the older ones that are higher up in, in which direction companies are going? Right. Uh, good question. Two things. One is uh, when you say someone's involved with petroleum, um, I want to make sure that people realize that while petroleum companies have been slow to recognize the issue and slow to react in a real way, um, they have historically been the good guys. They're the ones who bring the light, bring the energy, enable healthcare, enable uh, economic development, enable us to have this high, vibrant quality of life. They also have a lot of pressure from shareholders to continue to provide the kind of economic gains that they have historically. So um, just because you're with a petroleum company does not in any way make one a bad person in my perspective at all. It played an incredibly important role and they have an incredibly important role going forward once they pivot and they will. It's just a question of when. And part of the issue from them pivoting is what we choose to do, right? If we put more pressure on them and policymakers change the policy, they will pivot more quickly. But right now they're getting mixed signals. So I just want to make sure that we were clear on petroleum. Great. The second thing is what we have found works best for us is going through associations. Uh, so if we go into an investment club, a country club speaker series, a, a garden club, a chamber of commerce, a rotary club, that means people who are there are there for their regular meeting. So they may have very different perspective on climate change, but they're there and, oh, there's a speaker. And what? She's talking about climate change? Who let her in? Mm -hmm. Well, it was Jane or it was Joe or someone else that they know that is one of their group. And they see that we are respectful and respected 
through the presentation and that their friends are listening and maybe asking good questions. And all of a sudden it becomes less of a bright line to even be considering climate change. It's, it's less of a disloyalty or a taboo topic because you see others in your, your group are. And so that's kind of how we've been able to get to some of these skeptics, not by inviting them or challenging them, hey, come here, our presentation, we're going to change your mind, because that would never work. But mm. in fact, getting into where they're comfortable with their peers and in a normal, safe space for them and challenging them in a very gentle way with really good graphics and really good science. So I'm thinking of those kind of groups, and I typically didn't connect with those groups until I was older. Mm -hmm. So are you getting uh, that question of, you know, getting the 20s and 30s? Are you how are, are you finding a connection with them? So the yeah, and I'm sorry, I didn't really answer your question. It is um, not our primary target. Our primary target is more 40 up because for them, we have more commonalities in our own personal life, and we can be more of a trusted messenger. So we try, we have several other people who present, and we always try to match the presenter to the audience so that they have the most commonalities. There are a lot of climate change education groups targeting the young people already. I would posit a lot of them are a bit more strident and a bit more progressive or liberal than we are. Um, because I, I think that that is more of the gestalt of that age group. So I'm not positive that our approach would be fiery enough for some of them. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm an Oregonian. Yeah. Um, I haven't lived there for over 40 years now, but Oregon was very proud that we were the first to pass the bottle bill back in the early 70s, which started recycling of uh, bottles at that time and the five cent deposit and all those kind of things that we had to do back then. And I think they would certainly be viewed as progressive in environmental issues. Have you tapped into the Northwest and have you had success in reaching out to them? So um, Oregon was one of the first road trips we did. We did a West Coast of Northern California up to Oregon, up to Seattle. Um, it's our first big road trip. And, I, and what's interesting about Oregon is uh, on the coast, they are fairly progressive. But as you get inland, it's more oh. rural and it's a very different mindset. Um, we had a wonderful response in Portland. A lot of skeptics, though. It, it, we had we spoke to a lot of business people uh, at one. We had a private event in one of the country clubs, and it was a lot of skeptics and a lot of business reason why and and challenges on, you know, the economics. And it was a great conversation. Um, I will say that for us, climate change isn't an environmental issue, and we work hard to kind of separate it from recycling, from even I mean, we, we touch on biodiversity for sure, but we try to avoid aligning with any sort of green issue because in our mind, climate change is so much bigger. It is an economic issue. It is a health and security issue, and it is a geopolitical stability issue. 
And if we frame it with those parameters, it enables more people to understand the scale and scope. When we tie it too tightly to green, it, it limits our ability to, to reach people. And it also, in my mind, puts climate change in a smaller box than it deserves to be considered in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that a lot. And that's helpful. Um, I I don't know if this is still the slogan because I haven't lived there in so long, but you had an outline of the state and inside it was keep Oregon green. And that wasn't just about the valley being green because of the weather and the forests and the mountains, uh, but but an environmental green issue. So it's helpful to know that this what you're sharing, it's different. The green issue is important that they're talking about out there, I think, but what you're doing is different than that. And I think that's probably helpful for our folks to hear. Yeah. And, you know, we do talk about stewardship a bunch, and that's kind of a different way of getting at green. Um, you know, stewardship is an ethic that especially was strong within the conservative party. I mean, conservative, conserve. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, all the way back. It, it, the idea that we kind of have a moral obligation to leave the earth at least as good as we were given it, right? And that resonates across party lines. And that's um, a really good way, I think, of getting people to think about this. It's, it's not just about being green and doing the, what the greenies say, but instead a, a, an act of stewardship, an act of love to, to, to pass the world on um, in a healthy state. So we stimulate them to think about that side of it versus the green side. Right. Yeah. And that's great. I always in my sermon spoke about creation accounts in scripture uh, that the first thing that humanity is charged with is to be good stewards. So going right along with what you're saying, good stewards of the earth, not just gleaners of the earth. And I think it's a powerful message right now, in part because humanity has gotten so powerful and there's so many of us. And um, it's an ethic we we need to realize is not just good for the earth, but actually critically important to our ability to continue to inhabit the earth. Um, so it would help us if we brought that to the fore. So I'm so glad that that was important to you as well. Yes, yes. So coming up this year will be 10 years for sea change. So 10 years of your life that you have given to this subject and you don't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. So my question is, has it been difficult? 10 years is a long time. Has it been hard? Well, like anything, um, parts of it have been very hard and, and parts have been incredibly rewarding. And so far, the rewarding wins out on the hard. What makes it really hard is when you see what's at stake and when you envision what is likely to ensue in the future if we continue on our current path, it's heavy and it's dark. Um, I, I, I once said, and I, I still say, and this sounds a bit overdramatic, and I, and I hope it doesn't sound that way, but remember that scene in the Titanic when the mother is locked below with her young children, and she realizes that she can't get out and the ship is going to go down, and she reads them a bedtime story and tucks them in and makes them feel like everything is okay because she wants the rest of their time to be as joyful as possible. I have felt that same way with my own kids. 
that they are facing a world that is so different and has loses so much beauty and safety and will challenge them in such profound ways. And yet they're, you know, graduating from college and looking for their first job. And one of them lives in New Orleans, which is my hometown. And New Orleans is incredibly vulnerable to climate change. And quite honestly, by the end of the century, we'll probably either be a tiny little dot um, surrounded by levees like a Disney World or abandoned. So I love New Orleans. It's my hometown. My son loves New Orleans. He wants to build a life there. And yet what I see is that that's not wise. And that's very painful. Mm. The joys, however, one, to have a sense that we've created a tool that helps ameliorate that, that helps move people, that that helps get people who are currently fighting policy to say, hey, we need to have policy too. It may not be the same policy that the other party is suggesting, but we need to have policy too. We all need to come to the table, which is such an important part of our messaging. And to meet like-minded people around the country who are also trying to work in this area, or when we were just in COP28 internationally, to meet 70,000 other people who care passionately about this and are trying in their own ways to address it. And also, for me, it's been an adventure to travel the country. We've been to 32 states. We've talked to almost 19,000 people. And to be reminded of how good people are. I mean, many times I'm down in the South, you know, per, say the South or the Midwest, and I'm going to give them a presentation that a lot of them are very skeptical of. And they'll pray for me. They'll pray for me before I get started. And mm. they pray for me to be safe in my travels and to, you know, thank God for, for having me come. And this isn't a church setting. This is, you know, around a dinner table or, and they are so solicitous and so kind and so excited to share their community with me and, and to, to bring me in. And, oh my gosh, what a gift that has been. It has been an incredible experience to, to meet these um, different people. And oftentimes, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll send out a blog and someone that I met three years ago responds and says, hey, I love that blog, da, 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 da. And it just kind of makes my heart sing to know mm. I've, I've touched people and I have a connection out there with these wonderful people. Yeah, I will say, like, I'm just so inspired by the creativity of humanity. Like, mm. the, the things that people have come up with, it gives me a ton of hope that we can do this. Like, together, as a world, we can do this. So you've mentioned COP28 a few times now. What are those gatherings? Sure. Sorry. And we just got back. So I'm still kind of super jazzed. So COP28 is the International Climate Summit that brings all of the world together. And I'm going to say all the countries of the world um, to evaluate progress on climate and to set out pledges or goals of where they hope the world will go. Obviously, the most famous one was the Paris Accord, where it was agreed that we we're going to try to stay at the two degree or even better at the 1.5 degree C increase, um, which led to a lot of policy decisions around the world and did indeed bend the curve of our emissions. It was very important in doing so. 
that it is non-binding, um, but there is a lot of um, reputation on the line. So if you don't behave or or pledge to 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 go forward in in a way that is suitable to the the world gestalt, there is pressure on you. But again, it is non-binding. This last one was incredibly interesting because it was held in Dubai, which is a country that has been built on oil money, petrochemical money. It was double the attendance of last year's, which was in Egypt. Um, There were high-level negotiations throughout the event uh, with a lot of heads of state. Um, John Kerry was there. Al Gore was there. um, The vice president from the United States was there. I mean, so then you see a lot of high-level people talking about the issue, and there are negotiations going along the entire time on all sorts of things, on finance, on adaptation, on how to provide funding to the countries that are bearing the brunt of climate change today, but don't have the wherewithal to create the infrastructure to keep their people safe or create the the food system that will enable them to continue to have enough food going forward. There are a lot of sticky questions that get talked about and negotiated. And then coming out of that, there's often, if you're lucky, a sense of momentum towards a common goal. And this was one of those cases when we were indeed somewhat lucky in that there was for the first time a declaration that we need to transition off of fossil fuels, linking fossil fuels directly to climate change instead of just talking kind of amorphously about emissions or singling out just coal. It was across the board, we have to move. And that was kind of a Rubicon um, because that's something that we hadn't been able to get in the past. From that, um, there's also a goal to triple renewables and double efficiency by the end of um, this decade. There's also the goal to cut on methane emissions, which are very potent greenhouse gases that will have a short-term amelioration right away, which is really critical to do. And really, the oil companies could save money if they did it. So it's like a win-win. So there were some tangible things that came out of it. But more importantly, there was a real recognition that we do have to get off of fossil fuels, even those countries that currently have most of their economy or economic value derived from fossil fuels. And that, as the Saudi minister said, that's almost economic suicide for a country like Saudi Arabia. And yet they said those words or they they, they bought into that, that momentum, in part maybe because they recognize that it's suicide in general, if we don't. So we have to find a way for them to diversify their economy, for them to continue to grow. It's critically important. We have to make the transition in a way that doesn't upset our economies and doesn't create the political pushback that we've seen in the past. But there was a lot of momentum now in 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 making that transition. And so for me, it was one of those happy moments. It was a real validating time to be there and to witness it and to meet the entrepreneurs and the business leaders that were there who were also excited about the opportunities, the business opportunities that are coming as we transition. So it was one of those happy moments in this path. You know, that's really interesting. I, um, I've i traveled for ministry in Central Asia and the Middle East. And I guess one of my big concerns has been, you know, we can talk about let's get rid of fossil fuels. And I think of that area and go, wow, that would be incredibly challenging political dynamics 
financial dynamics economically in those areas challenging. How was that addressed in Dubai or was it addressed? So hmm, let me say this. So Dubai is intriguing because it has diversified its economy. So as one of the oil major states, it has in part because its landmass is a bit smaller than say Abu Dhabi, which is the, the capital, it saw the writing on the wall and they now get a lot of their economic value from shipping, from financial services, from tourism. So they've already shown what can be done if you start investing wisely. So I think in some parts having them at the helm because um, that it's where the COP28 was held and having that leadership uniquely gives them a, a bigger bullhorn because the president of COP was from there. The other thing that was kind of interesting is because they're right on the cusp of Asia and Africa, um, there was a sense that they could represent the global South a bit more because it's not just the oil companies that are forgoing that wealth if we take this path. It's also some African countries that suddenly have the ability to lift their people out of poverty if they can use their petroleum reserves that they've discovered and play on that game board. And we're telling them, so sorry, the game is closed. We used up all of the emissions. You can't take your people out of poverty now. It's a hard thing to hear and it's a hard thing to accept, um, which is why there's a lot of talk about allowing some of them to continue while the Western world who has the ability to morph to other forms of energy gets off more quickly so that the transition would be on a different scale. That's hard to tell the oil companies in America or, or in, in Texas, right, that that they too have to give up the the, the economic value that they have projected to be able to, to use. I think that that part of the world, as we talk about the Middle East, is also reckoning with the fact that it's getting too hot to live there, that mm. their summers are getting to be at a level where if a healthy human being outside for you know six hours will die. So, and it's it's just flirting with those levels now, but it's projected to be in there in spades in just a few decades. So yes, it's harmful to their economy, but if they continue on the current path, their economies won't be able to exist either. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we help them transition? How do we do it in a fair way? How do we support their diversification? And I think it's critically important because you, you said something about that whole region. And right now, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, from what I was told from people who live there, had really moved forward as being kind of the powerhouses of the Middle East. They're replacing Egypt, they're replacing Iraq, they're replacing um, Syria. And, and because they're wealthier and in Dubai's case, more cosmopolitan and forward-looking, it's a different face of the Middle East. There are mosques in Abu Dhabi. There are also churches and synagogues right nearby. So it was represented to me as a more tolerant, forward-looking um, society than what I think many of us think of Middle East states have, has historically been. That was a very long answer to say that it has lots of moving parts. Right. Yeah. No, that was very helpful. I mean, even to me, I think of the airport in Dubai that's dripping with gold from the ceilings and people that just fly there for the day to go shopping in the airport. And then they fly back home, wherever that is that, you know, my eyes kind of rolled as I saw that, but to think of what they're putting in with 
shipping with tourism that it's more than just shopping for gold and diamonds, but they are developing in new ways. That's yeah, uh, it's interesting and hopeful to me. I'm gonna I'm gonna build on that if I may. A lot of people I, I hear kind of say, "Oh, Dubai is like Las Vegas. It's like this fake city." And and I had a different impression. It, it is a new city, so it doesn't have antiquity. It doesn't have the old sense that it evolved over time. But it is forward looking, and the architecture is amazing. The buildings are beautiful. They're also inventive. Um, it makes New York look puny. And they did it all in the last 45 years. Again, I don't want to overstate this, but we went to the biggest mosque in Abu Dhabi. And the path in is called the path of tolerance. Mm. So I don't consider the path of tolerance what I would have expected at a, a mosque in the Middle East. Um, it was one of the most beautiful edifices I've ever, ever seen and tasteful. The inlays were beautiful. That The biggest rug, handmade rug in the world. I mean, it was astounding. It's, it's more than just the gold and it's more than just the spices and it's more than just new. It is a testament of, of a society that somehow was given incredible wealth as a Bedouin and had the ability to be forward thinking enough to craft a complicated economy that has uplifted the people that were indigenous there, but also is a beacon of opportunity for people from all over the Middle East. Because 90% of the people who reside in the UAE come to work there because of economic opportunity. Mm. So I, I'm sounding like a cheerleader, but <laughs> I was impressed. That's great. Uh, yeah, that's helpful to me to get a, a better picture of what Dubai has become. That makes me happy. And, and I should be cautious and say I was only there for nine days. And so, um, but I, I we did spend an afternoon with a woman who was an expat who had lived there for 23 years and had raised her children there. And so we did get an inside look and we got, you know, on the water taxi with the workers, not with the tourists, you know, so we had a bit of, of a, a more nuanced impression because of that exposure. Um, but I'm sure many of your listeners may know more than I do, but I was impressed. And so I, I, I want to share that. Yeah. I personally find that helpful as someone from the Midwest who hasn't actually traveled all that much. Um, I feel like most of my impression of different areas is just from the news or um, different things that I read. So it is helpful to have a first person account of their experience. Okay. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, I am out of questions, but Jeff, is there anything else that you wanted to ask? I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing to feel the wind lifting you in a way that you are empowered to speak with love on a very challenging subject. So know that when you talked about people praying for you, that Susan and I will be thinking of you and praying for you, most definitely all of you. Encourage the team when you're talking and <laughs> be reminded how loved you are by God in the midst of all that you're doing. Thank you. And uh, that means the world to me. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. 
If you'd like to learn more about Sea Change Conversations, you can go to www.c-changeconversations.org. That's the letter C-C-H-A-N-G-E conversations.org. Or just Google it. (laughs) Until next time, live well.